Father, uh, we thank you for bringing us here today that we can uh, share in fellowship and food and sing together and listen to your word. I pray that you, are, you guide my words today and you open up our hearts to listen to what you're saying to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so I wonder if there's anyone who you know, um, it might be somebody at work, or somebody in your family who is so against Christianity that you dare not bring it up around them. It may be that they get really, really angry, almost irrationally angry when you start talking about Christianity. Or it may be that they have resolved in their heads all the arguments and they're such a, they, they present such strong arguments or clever arguments that you find it really difficult to talk to them. Or they just don't listen. They'll walk away. And so, because you like them or you, you, know, you have to work with them, you dare not bring uh, Christian, uh, Christianity up around them. Is there someone who you know who you would never think would become a Christian? Again, they're against Christianity or they just don't want to listen. I wonder whether you know that someone like that. Maybe it's your boss. Or maybe you think uh, the Prime Minister of Malaysia. Or... Um, Richard Dawkins, if you've ever read some of his stuff, um, how unbelievable would it be for him to turn around and retract everything he said about Christianity, all the insults and the bile and the, the, uh, the put-downs of, of Christians, belittling them for, for their beliefs? Well, I don't know about you, but I, if, if I heard that, I would think it was probably a trick. You know, maybe the, the newspaper's playing some April Fool's. This, this guy has suddenly become a Christian? Yeah, maybe it's an April Fool. Or maybe he's just trying to make fools of us all. Well, that's what's going on here today in this passage. And we've probably read it before, but I'm going to read it again. So we're in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 13, the conversion of Saul. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue, synagogues at Damascus. So if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So, he, so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple, a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a, in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, 
and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might, might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. How much evil has he done in your, uh, to your saints at Jerusalem? And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the, the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who, you appear, who appeared to you upon the road by which you came, he has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. It's a wonderful story, and, but probably quite familiar. So in some ways we lose the impact uh, of it, but it's still quite a strong story. But do you see that right from the beginning, Saul, who later becomes Paul, is breathing threats and murder against Christianities, uh, sorry, Christians. Turn back uh, just a couple of chapters to the end of chapter 7 and the start of chapter 8. In chapter 7, we get Stephen's, uh, Stephen's sermon, Stephen telling the Pharisees. He's saying to them, just to summarize it, he's saying, I'm not surprised you killed Jesus because it was always like this, and goes on to list how the Jews killed the prophets um, and God's servants. And all the way down to Jesus, whenever God sent a servant, the Jews would kill them, persecute and kill them. And so, uh, so enraged were they that they took him out and stoned him. And witnessing it all was a young Pharisee named Saul. And at the start of chapter 8, you can see he approved of it. This young Pharisee who was charged with looking after the cloaks of those people stoning, so he's a responsible young man and a Pharisee, he approved of this murder of Stephen. And so passionate that he was, that Christianity was wrong, he went to the high priests and asked to be allowed to go and chase the Christians out of Jerusalem all the way to Damascus. Now, those of you who know your geography, Damascus wasn't in Judea at the time. It's not even part of old Israel. Damascus is part of Syria. So he's so passionate about these Christians that they are wrong and that he wants to put them right and root them out, imprison them or even kill them, that he will go to another country to, to do it. Can you imagine that? So look at... And uh, we're going back to our passage. Have a look at Ananias' reaction. And you, you shouldn't be too surprised by this. Starting from verse 13. 
But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard about this man. How much evil has he done to your saints in Jerusalem? And he, here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Ananias is saying, God, are you kidding me? This guy kills Christians. Are you sending me to help this man? Can you imagine if God came to you and asked you, go, the, the leader of ISIS is waiting for you. The leader of ISIS who has uh, ordered and executed hundreds of Christians, he's waiting for you. Can you imagine God saying that to you and how terrified you would be of this man? Now, all through this passage, we see this common theme. Now, we've seen from Acts that um, the gospel has gone out from Jerusalem now. It's gone to Samaria and it's gone. It's starting to go out to the rest of the, the earth. And just in this section, we see the question, who can be saved? Who is going to be part of God's new kingdom? We saw that God's old kingdom was the Jews. We see a few Gentiles come in, people like Ruth uh, come in, and Rahab come into part of God's kingdom, but mostly it's just the Jews. Now we see, we're asking, who can be part of God's kingdom? Well, we've seen the Sumerians uh, uh, converted, but they were, part, they were partly Jewish anyway, so you might think, well, that's okay. Okay, but then two weeks ago when Mike was talking about uh, preaching, we saw an Ethiopian, a key figure, an ambassador, and also a eunuch. Now the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 9 says that anyone who has been castrated cannot be part of the kingdom of God. So here we see, here's, sorry, the assembly of God. Here we see... Uh, God saying, this man can be part of my new kingdom. Not only is he an Ethiopian, a Gentile, but also a eunuch. Previously uh, forbidden from entering the temple, previously forbidden from reading the scriptures, previously uh, forbidden from entering the assembly of God. But you might ask, yeah, you might say, these guys, well, they were very eager to become Christians. They were very eager to accept the gospel. Well, we see something very different here. Saul wasn't like that. He was brought into the kingdom of God, kicking and screaming. Well, not quite kicking and screaming, but he had to be struck blind and spend three days thinking about what he'd done, much like a child in the corner, thinking about what he'd done before God uh, send him a disciple, and then he was baptized. Jesus had to appear to this man and bring him into the God, uh, kingdom of God. So, um, and I mean, we, we know that, I mean, for example, Stephen Dawkins says that Christ, uh, Christianity is for children, the dumb and the gullible. And anyone who's read uh, Paul's letters knows that he is an intellectual. He's neither gullible nor dumb. So the question uh, that keeps on being repeated through this section is, who can become part of the kingdom of God? 
So we see somebody who is not just rejecting Jesus. He is actively working against Jesus. We see somebody who's an intellectual who knows the scriptures and he can argue. And we see him arguing. And Jesus appears to him and brings him into the kingdom of God. So that person who you think might be very anti-Christianity, when they hurl insults at you, when they argue back at you, when they don't listen, that should spur you on to pray all the harder for them. Because if Paul can be saved, then anyone can be saved. And that's my first point. If Paul can be saved, anyone can be saved. And we've seen that repeated through history. John Newton, who was a slaver, was brought into Christianity. He wrote Amazing Grace about his sudden conversion. Nicky Cruz, I don't know whether some of you have read his book, Run Baby Run. He was a, a gang leader in New York, one of the most vicious gangs in New York, and he was converted. And still, he's still alive, he became an evangelist. And so we see through history these people who were so anti-Christianity brought into the kingdom of God, for the glory of God. And so if Paul can be saved, anyone can be saved. My second point is this. Uh, in fact, I'm, I'm going to go on to my second point. Uh, Paul is key to the gospel of uh, the spread of the gospel. A few years ago, um, my friend, uh, my best friend, uh, liked, uh, started going to Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park. Um, now, I don't know whether you know what it is. I know that in Singapore they have one. Uh, I haven't been to it yet. I, I intend to visit it. But in, in London, every weekend, uh, if you go down to a certain corner of Hyde Park called Speaker's Corner, there are flocks and crowds of people. And people are encouraged to rant and rave and preach about whatever they want. And, and they do. And, and they, get these, uh, they get onto a platform. Usually it, it used to be soapboxes, but now they have these little stepladders. I mean, the, the, the higher the possible, uh, yeah, the higher the better. They get up so that they're above everyone else. Some of them actually have megaphones, but they shout at people and they shout at each other. And some of them like to engage uh, with people and argue with people, but most of them just, you know, just shout. And it's, it's quite an experience. Uh, and the, that's the first place I got exposed to lots of different ideas, um, very strange ideas. There's a guy who's a, uh, a Christian atheist. He believes in the teaching of Jesus, um, but not that he was God. So kind of ignores about 80% of what Jesus says. Um, but he likes to, to push his ideas. He doesn't get too many people listening to him, I'm afraid. The Muslims have a big presence there. You know, a, a big crowd of Muslims, and they love to engage with the Christians, and, and there's some Christian evangelists who go and love to engage with them. And it's, it's, it's very fast-paced, and it's very loud. It's not really my forum. I decided that. I like to sit down and actually have a, a discussion back and forth. And I did with a, a couple of Muslims uh, who I met from there. Um, but this is the first place that I got exposed to exactly what Muslims believe about Christianity. They now, they believe uh, that the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament, are holy books. They believe that God gave uh, the Pentateuch, the first five uh, books of the Bible, to Moses. And then the, uh, the Old Testament scriptures, the rest of the Old Testament scriptures, the prophecies, to the prophets. 
Now, they, then they believe that, uh, that that was all corrupted and that the Jews were living, not understanding this. Well, there's some understanding of that argument, but they, what they had as scriptures was corrupted. So God sent Jesus to change this, to, to correct this. And Jesus came down as a, a prophet, not as the Messiah, as a prophet from God to give us a new word of God to correct their wrong thinking. And then come 550 years later, there came Muhammad. And the word of Jesus and the Old Testament was corrupted yet again. And so Muhammad came to, to correct this and to, to put humanity back on the right track. And that's what the Quran is. The Quran, is our, they believe, is our, our most reliable word from God. And that while they believe that the teachings from the Old Testament and from the New Testament are, are holy and they should be listened to, the Quran takes precedence over them. So um, this is interesting because, um, well, I'm going to, uh, yeah, and uh, I mean, the arguments they say, they turn around to you and say, say, well, who wrote your Bible? Who wrote your New Testament? Peter? Well, Peter, didn't he betray Jesus? Didn't he say that he didn't know Jesus? He said it three times. So how can you trust him? And Paul, how can you trust Paul? Clever arguments. But firstly, you know, he killed Christians, didn't he? So how can you trust Paul? And there's many people out there who believe that Paul wrote Christ, uh, the New Testament, wrote the Bible. And you might have heard that argument. Paul isn't like Jesus. Well, they, do, they don't understand. These people, they don't understand two things. Firstly, they don't understand the gospel of grace. Peter failed. Peter denied Jesus and Jesus restored him. Paul was saved despite all the terrible things he had done. The gospel of grace is something that these people don't understand and don't have. And thank goodness that we have it, because it's a wonderful message. The second thing that they, uh, they don't understand, or rather they don't think about, is they believe in a God who created the universe. Now, I went to Imperial College and I met a lot of scientists and I've chatted with a lot of scientists. The world is an amazing place. If you look at you know, the universe and all the stars out there, or even if you just look at a single creature, the amazing complexities that are on in, in that. How can a God who created all of that allow his word to be corrupted? How dare we say that, that, that God would allow us to hear a corrupted version of his gospel. Now, yes, there are a couple of passages that we're not sure about the translation, but the, the simple message of Jesus' salvation stays true and has stayed true throughout history. Jesus is our substitutionary sacrifice. We get to uh, God and restored relationship to God because of that simple message, and that stayed true from day one. So they don't understand this. And this is where Paul comes into it. 
Now, can you imagine spending your whole life studying the Bible? And that's all you, uh, you spend your life studying. Some of you, you know, might, might not like maths. I, I teach maths and I love maths. But I don't think I could, uh, you know, and I do maths all day, but I don't think I could sit there and actually learn maths all day. I'm teaching it, but I'm, I'm not really learning it. If I sat there and I, I listened to just maths lectures all day, well, I, I might get a little bit tired. But this is what the Jews had. The Old Testament scriptures, well, this was their history. This was their law. This was their, their songbook. This was their literature. Everything that Paul would have learned growing up as a Jewish boy would have been from the Old Testament scripture. And that would just have been a regular Jew, but Paul was something more. He was a Pharisee. So he was one of the ruling class. He was born into that. And so he, and he was trained up by one of the famous Pharisees, Gamaliel. So all the way through his childhood and his teenage years and his years as a young adult, he would have been steeped in, uh, in the Old Testament scriptures. And you can imagine him as a passionate young, yeah, young Jew, arguing with his friends and his colleagues and his family and his professors, debating and discussing, discussing, uh, discussing issues. All those little things that don't quite make sense, all the controversies, all the contradictions that are in the, uh, the Old Testament scriptures. If you've talked to theologians about their experience of Bible college, you know that, or if you've been to Bible college, you know that there's a lot of you know, discussion about all of these little you know, things. Regardless of whether it makes kind of uh, an impact on our everyday life, they love to discuss these, these minor issues. And now can you imagine this passionate young Christian who is so steep, sorry, passionate young Jew who's so steeped in the old, old scriptures. Suddenly Jesus appears to him and everything falls into place. All those controversies, all those contradictions in the Old Testament scriptures, all those things he believed suddenly realign themselves to, and he sees that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything he studied up to that point. So those who believe that the Old Testament uh, scriptures were corrupted and Jesus replaced it. Well, Jesus says himself, I haven't come to replace it, I've come to fulfill it. And Paul sees this. And I like to believe that God struck him blind as a mercy, as a brain overload. If you've had an epiphany, it's not just just a sudden light bulb moment like something, something some, sometimes my students have in my lessons occasionally. That's a beautiful moment. You see it, bing, and they get it. And it's like, yes. Um, an epiphany is something more. It's where your whole life comes into focus and it has meaning and it changes your life. I love that Alice talked about repentance. Repentance comes from the old Greek word, which means it was a military word where people are marching and it's the same word as if, you know, it, they would have used uh, for, for our army for about turn. You can imagine them, them uh, shouting this, about turn. It means just turning completely 180 degrees, completely around, repentance. And this is what happens to Paul. All of a sudden, his life is turned around. And Paul 
is so significant because he is steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. He knows this and he sees that Jesus is the fulfillment of this. And from now on in Acts, the story becomes how Jesus continues to work, but mostly through Paul. And so Paul becomes a key figure. Now, my third point is that God chose Paul for a purpose. Now, he doesn't just become converted and become part of the Christian, Christian fellowship and just become one of the regular members, putting out chairs. And, yeah, and these are wonderful things. God chose this man for a purpose, for his greater glory, his mercy and his love for even those who persecute him. But because Paul had a very significant purpose in his next, uh, next step. And he doesn't just choose us because he wants some company in heaven. God doesn't just choose us because he wants more numbers in heaven. When we become Christians, we can become more than that. He chooses us for a purpose. And we don't, uh, so we become witnesses for him, workers for the harvest, soldiers in God's army, some people call it fishermen for the lost. Even if it's just witnessing to your neighbors or your colleagues and saying that you're a Christian, that is for God's glory. But we see it so much more powerfully in Paul. Let's have a look at this passage in Acts. If you have a look down at verse 13, God answers Ananias' nervousness. He says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so Paul continues with the same burning passion, but this time in the service for God. If you know Paul's story, you know that he was beaten and he was stoned more than once. He survived a stoning more than once. He was shipwrecked and poisoned and eventually beheaded, executed in Rome. Well, it doesn't say that in Acts, but we know that from history. He knew it was coming. If you read his letters, you know that he knows this thing is coming. He knows the persecution is coming, the suffering but he didn't flinch from it. He went to it eagerly. And you're thinking, why on earth would you go to that eagerly? And that's because he knew the truth, that there's only one life worth living, and that's a life for God. That is the truth that Paul knew. And the question here is, if God has chosen you, will you follow God's will for your life? even if it means suffering, persecution, and even death. Now, God doesn't ask us all to die, or even do as much as Paul. I don't think there's many stonings that happen today. There are, I know, but probably not in Malaysia. Um, but is, are you willing to hear God's call? So I'm going to summarize with my three uh, points uh, in slightly different order. Um, if someone says that the Bible is irrelevant for today, if someone says that the Bible's written by man and that's inaccurate, have a look at what Jesus says and Paul says about the Old Testament and the New Testament. Peter himself says 
in his epistle, 1 Peter 3, says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. He does, all, uh, does in all of these letters, sorry, he does in all his letters, and he speaks in them of these matters. These things, uh, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. People now, even now, twist the Bible and, you know, uh, they're the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. Well, they twist what uh, Paul says and Peter says and the Bible says. They say that Paul is a, uh, a bigot and a misogynist, someone who hates women. He, they say that he wrote, you know, the uh, Christianity. And then Peter says, as they do other scriptures. Can you see that Peter's describing Paul's writing as scriptures? He is saying that Paul's writings are the word of God. There is no division between Peter and Paul here. He says that they're difficult to understand, but they're scriptures. And I know I find sometimes some of Paul's writings difficult to understand, but they're God's words. That was, that's what Peter is saying. And if you disagree, if you think that there's some difference between what Paul's writing and Jesus' teaching, then do come and talk to me afterwards. We can talk through some of those things. Do go and ask somebody about that, and we can, you know, you can work through that. There is no difference in my mind between what Paul's teaching and what Jesus is teaching. And so, if you think that the Bible is irrelevant uh, for now, or that it's written by man, or that it's corrupted, then look at those and think about the God who created everything, the complexities of every plant, animal, and this whole world. Do you not think that he can keep his message pure? This simple message of salvation. If you come across someone who aggressively rejects the gospel, someone who you think will never be open to it, making, maybe making your life difficult, please pray all the harder for his, his or her salvation. Because if Paul can be saved, someone who persecuted uh, Christians, an intellectual who had all the clever arguments, if Peter can be saved, the person who rejected, uh, sorry, who, who denied Jesus, and he wasn't an intellectual, he loved to jump into things with both feet. Yeah, he, he often put his foot in his mouth. You know, I sometimes relate much more to Peter than to Paul. Well, if they can be saved, then so can the person who you have in your mind. If you feel God calling you to stand out, possibly facing mockery, persecution or death, remember that you are just following in the tradition of Paul and Stephen, all the prophets, many people through history, and ultimately Jesus. Let me pray. Father, help us to have compassion on those who would uh, fight you. Lord, help us to remember that they are fighting you, that they are rejecting you. They're not rejecting us, um, us personally, but we as your family 
they are rejecting you. Lord, help us to have pity on them. Help us to love them and to pray for them harder. Lord, help us uh, to understand that Paul, um, you had mercy on Paul as you had mercy on us, Lord. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.